Upset Patterns listeners, welcome back to yet another episode of our reboot. I'm your host, Will Comperdal. Our episode today is about Nepalese migration and its effect on family outcomes. My guest is Nell Comperdal, a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Michigan. Her dissertation examines the associations between family life and international migration in rural Nepal. She's also consulted for the World Bank on a project investigating female internal labor migration in Lesotho. Nell, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Well, this is an economics podcast. I consider myself somewhat of an economist, and economists like to think that their discipline can explain everything. Now, in this era of fake news, it's hard to tell what the truth is, but there is a rumor going around. It's a two-part rumor. The first is that there are social science disciplines other than economics, and the second is that these disciplines can provide insight into how the world works. So I want you to first address that rumor, and second, if it is true, can you let us know, as a social demographer, what does your toolkit or framework look like when you are approaching a subject like migration? Well, Will, it's always a pleasure to talk to economists and let them know that there is life outside of economics. Um, Indeed, I am trained as a social demographer in the field of sociology. And it's important to remember that social demographers actually come from a range of fields, including economics. Um, We study demographic outcomes, and that means fertility, marriage, mortality, migration, of course, and we all come at it from different approaches. Social demographers include anthropologists, economists, and sociologists and other fields. Sociologists tend to use approaches that use perspectives coming more from a social framework. And by that, I mean we consider social context, We consider social organization, institutions, different levels of social life. Economists tend to focus more on rational choice at the individual level when it comes to migration decisions. Um, So, Will, in my work, I tend to look at the immediate social contexts of an individual, and by that I mean family life, also social organization within the community, um, distance to different non-family institutions and services such as markets and schools and bus stops and health centers. So just to give you an idea of kind of the way that we speak to similar social problems but coming at it from different angles. For a lot of our listeners, maybe all of our listeners who I would think live in higher income countries, when they, they follow the discourse on migration, there are a few aspects that it probably follows. So one is that it's looking at the effects on the destination country of the migrants. So migrants going from, let's say, Syria to Europe or from Latin America to the U.S. And the focus is on the destination destination country. The second aspect is that it typically will look at the effect on wages or employment of the, of the natives in the destination country. The third is that the migration is typically long-term, like that the migrants are coming for a long period of time. Now, our story today kind of does a 180-degree turn from that, and so we'll be focusing on the sender country, Nepal, 
bordering China and India, and we will be looking at we we will be looking at wages, which do play a part in the picture, but more specifically, marital attitudes and family outcomes. And rather than look at longer-term migration, we are looking at short-term or seasonal migration. So now, give us the backdrop of this migration story. Who is it migrating? Why are they migrating? And how significant is this to the Nepalese population? The conversation. In higher income countries, does tend to be about the receiving countries for a few reasons. One, higher income countries tend to have better data, and it's just easier to analyze immigration, migration, temporary migration when you have access to better data. A second reason is that receiving countries, higher income receiving countries, are more. Politically interested in what it does, just as you are saying, to the wages and the well-being of the members of that society. So, in this case, what's interesting in Nepal, which is a country in South Asia, Nepal is an interesting case in South Asia in that it has somehow maintained its independence from bordering countries, including China and India. And I say that because. There are geographic or、um, physical challenges that have left Nepal somewhat isolated until the 1950s, and that left it really less developed than a lot of other countries in the region. It has always had an open border with India, and that's important for a number of reasons. They share. Incredible cultural similarities with India,、um, including shared language and a caste system, and a lot of intermarriages has been going on across the border for generations, for centuries.、Um, in the 1970s, Nepal, due to international aid、um, and a lot a large effort from the Nepalese government, they invested in infrastructure connecting the east to the west side of Nepal, and at that point, was really when Nepal experienced a huge inflow of ideas from countries or from sources outside of just India. So there's a number of reasons that Nepal, in recent decades, has experienced a huge outmigration. For labor or income purposes, and that is, as I was saying,、um, the level of economic development. It is one of the least developed countries in South Asia, and in 1990, due to political the political economy, it transitioned to a democracy and has a, had a very hard time translating that into strengthening its domestic economy. Due to these factors. The majority of Nepalese are dependent on subsistence agriculture, and climate change is happening as they are right in the Himalayan region, and so inconsistent crop yields and a domestic, a stagnant domestic economy has meant that individuals and families are increasingly seeking higher wages abroad. So, as I was saying, that has historically been to India. But the oil boom in the 1970s and 80s in the Gulf region has led to an increased demand for labor, specifically for construction. So what we've been find, what we have found in Nepal in the recent decades, is this huge migration stream 
not just from Nepal, but South Asia in general, to the Gulf Cooperation Council member states to seek two-year labor contracts, largely in the construction sector, but also as security guards. Um, the migration stream is also quite gendered. There's a huge need for domestic work, although Nepal is a unique case in that they, it's actually institutionalized that men go instead of women. Um, the government of Nepal has placed a ban on women migrating to the region because they deem it unsafe although this institutionalized ban is also met culturally for real strong preferences among both men and women, that men are the ones to go to, or just to seek work abroad in order to support their families. It's interesting because it is temporary in nature, more so than any other stream. Gulf Cooperation Council member states they have placed these two or three year limits on these contracts, um, they're formal contracts, and they have what's called a CALAF or a migrant monitoring system that keeps a close eye on all foreign nationals working in these countries so as to restrict foreign workers' interactions with locals. They have strict rules as far as who can come, who can stay, and for how long. And, and how significant is this migration to the Nepalese population? Is this sort of a drop in the bucket, or is it a pretty substantial percentage of the population? Quite substantial. To put, it, to put one number out there, almost 20% of Nepali men were abroad in 2008 working. And the majority of these are going to... GCC member states if they can. Um, and by that I mean that these ha wages are quite lucrative, so if they have the startup investment money, then they go if they can. So these Nepalese men are spending a lot of time out of the country, and the women are left to basically more or less run the communities, or the household. And what does this mean as far as the family structure? You know, how does the supplemental income affect the changes at home? It's a complicated question that scholars have been seeking answers to for quite some time. I can say the Nepalese case is interesting and different from other contexts. Part of that is because reunification is not possible. And my work has shown um, I have collected both quantitative and qualitative data in Qatar and Nepal with migrant and non-migrant husbands and wives. And what my research shows is, for one, that these men who are going to Gulf countries are overwhelmingly married men with children. And so you can think about it in a number of ways. Um, for one, the wife, there's a large literature on whether these wives who are quote-unquote left behind are more empowered. So that means that perhaps they receive these remittances and have more say in household decisions, or they ha experience more independence when, her, when their husbands are away. In Nepal, couples tend to reside with the husband's parents for a good amount of time until they, can ha until they have enough money to buy land and build a home of their own. In this case, women then to defer, tend to defer household decisions to their in-laws as well as their husbands still. 
At the same time, a lot of women in my interviews reported feeling incredibly burdened by the additional household tasks that they had to absorb while their husbands were away. Usually this is agriculture, but it also is many sense being a single parent. They reported, as well as non-migrant couples, a very large stigma against women being home alone without the husbands. They were viewed as unsafe and it was improper and women should not be going to the markets without their husbands. So these migrants' wives felt that they were experiencing independence, but it wasn't necessarily a good thing. As far as the children, a huge driver of migration in Nepal and other low-income settings is, and in this setting, I do find exactly that. It is men with, ch- with school-aged children who are overwhelmingly migrating abroad. And what I'm finding is that the government subsidized primary school in Nepal. So a lot of these children are enrolled in government schools, but it is the children of migrants who are more likely to be enrolled in private schools. And in Nepal, just like in India, these are English-based, they come with some level of prestige, and these parents understand that these private schools give their kids a leg up when it comes to future employment opportunities. I see two opposite forces then working in the case of the kids. Uh, One is that the supplemental income, the remittances from this new work opportunity in in a Gulf country um, can increase their opportunities at at education, for example, but it also means you have uh, an absentee father for perhaps years at a time. And so those seem to be uh, opposite forces as far as the kids' prospective future goes. So I don't know if you have anything to say about which one outweighs the other, if there's a generalization we can make. From my research, there it was it was pretty clear that both migrants and non-migrants viewed migration as a necessary evil, and that had to do particularly when it came to children. So just like you were saying, migration and remittances helps improve children's educational opportunities. At the same time, most people saw a husband's absence or a father's absence as particularly detrimental when it came when it comes to children's emotional and just general well-being. But there's research from other contexts that does support the claim that an absent father does do emotional and mental it has its consequences. How much can a job opportunity like that supplement the median income in Nepal? So, you know, even let's say they get that job opportunity, they go over there, we can assume that they are taking the opportunity because it really is that much of an economic benefit. But how much better off are they as far as income goes compared to if they just stayed in Nepal? Anecdotally, I can say that Being in these villages in rural Nepal, our study site is in south-central Nepal on the border with India, a very agricultural setting. You can, one can walk around these villages and point to houses and almost guess where the husband is working abroad. It is that clear. Migration and the remittances that come from it really do increase household's income. And what's interesting is that while Nepal is dependent on it, 
a lot of these migrants do view it both not by choice, but also it is a it's an external constraint, but also within their own decisions that they aim to be gone for between five to ten years, and it is that income they hope to accumulate enough savings all with the goal of starting their own business at the end of it. And I mentioned earlier kind of how um, the discourse in the higher income countries is focused on the destination, um, kind of how, how it affects the, the natives in the destination country. What I think is rarely appreciated is how big these remittances are for the migrants. So it's not just that someone will come to the United States, set up shop, have a job, and then that's it. A lot of times, the biggest effect, as far as their well-being goes, is the money they get is being sent home back to their family in their native country. And that is a, a hugely underappreciated aspect of this whole thing. And so I guess in the Nepalese situation, the remittances are, they are not in themselves going to be a solution to getting Nepal off of subsistence farming. But it, like you said, if they can accumulate enough wealth, that means that they can slowly build up the capital to start a business and I guess make that migration temporary and eventually go back and try to build their country up. That is right. A lot of these individuals have that ultimate goal in mind. Unfortunately, Nepal's economy is so poor that in reality, a lot of these respondents actually spoke of where they think their sons are going to migrate. So while their sons and daughters are getting better education than they once had, Nepal still just doesn't, it lacks the real employment opportunities outside of subsistence farming at this point. So these migrants in some are moving abroad, aiming to put their children through better quality schools and accumulate savings to start a business. And in that sense, they see it as a win-win in that they have, they're able to then earn more money and also be closer to home. In April 2015, an earthquake hit Nepal and it was pretty devastating. And could you talk a little bit about how this migration of tons of men to the Gulf countries affected their uh, coping with that disaster? Yeah, that is one of the implications that's kind of quiet throughout this all. Remittance are a huge benefit to having these men earn higher wages abroad, but the truth is, is they aren't home. And unlike migration to, say, India, which is a bus ride, or even some of these men can walk into India, these men are a decent plane ride away and... Oftentimes their employer has their paperwork and sometimes will refuse their exit and their return home. And what happened with this earthquake is quite devastating. There were almost entire villages where the men, or I should say the young, able-bodied men, were not there to help with Nepal's recovery. And so instead, Nepal had to look to foreign aid and the response was slower and probably less efficient than it would have been otherwise. Another kind of relevant topic uh, is the World Cup in Qatar, which I believe is in the year 2022. 
Um, and that is one of the countries that you mentioned as a destination for these migrants. And so how are they playing a part in that? And how does it build into the bigger picture? Actually, construction for that event has led to an even higher demand than other destinations in that region. And so what you have are huge numbers of South Asian men migrating specifically for construction. And because there's such a deadline in this country, Qatar has very lofty goals as far as the face it would like to put forward to the world and these ambitions as far as infrastructure and shiny buildings means that a lot of these South Asian migrants are working in terrible conditions, long work days. Outside of the city, they often live in six people rooms, barrack style, and the working conditions with the weather are actually so bad that the international airport at Kathmandu does not have the infrastructure to deal with the bodies being sent back from the Middle East that are essentially dying in these terrible conditions. Overall, how does the story of Nepalese migration to these Gulf countries compare to the migration trends in the region or in the world at large? Do you see the same effects, mostly generally speaking, um, when it comes to people from other countries as far as the change in household attitudes and the, the, the gender roles and, and all of that? Or is it pretty similar or are there some pretty distinct differences? And I think two things about this Nepalese stream, um, and I should say the majority of Nepalese are migrating to the Gulf, but those that can, and by that, by can, I mean they have a little bit more money to invest up front, go to East Asia, so Malaysia and Singapore, but that's not as common. But for both streams, the fact that it is temporary by nature, and also that is overwhelmingly men, does have implications for the country of Nepal that are different from other streams from low-income countries. The immediate streams that I can think of are the Philippines or Lesotho or Mexico, as you have said. And in those streams, so for instance in the Philippines, there is a huge outmigration of mothers and wives and daughters for domestic care around the world from the Philippines. The government works hard to help to enable these women or to make the process easier for them. And so right there you have fundamental differences in how migration is impacting both the migrants and their families in the countries back home. For Nepal, the fact that it is men, my work finds that the migration actually improves their well-being specifically when it comes to their marriage. So these men are happier, they regard their marriage more highly, whereas the women, it's quite complicated. Yes, they can make their participating more in household decisions, but they are not any happier. And that might be due to the fact that they still really are kind of bound to these more reproductive or domestic tasks. I think until women are able to enter the workforce or and that includes migration whether you know largely 
they migrate to India, but I mean to destinations outside of India, until women have that opportunity, I think that social life in this setting is largely going to remain how it has been for centuries, and that is that men will have more opportunities than women. I mean, and I do, ha I, I do have to add as well, because if you think about its neighbor India, which is incredibly diverse, incredibly huge, you know, it's one of the strongest or, you know, the fastest growing economies, it does have better infrastructure to help more local markets and economies that Nepal just does not have. And so I do think that unlike its other, or if you look at Bangladesh that has an established textile sector, Nepal really is limited to subsistence farming. And what's scary about that is that climate change is affecting them more and more every day. And so migration is really turning into one of the most lucrative, if not the only lucrative opportunity for individuals living outside of the capital. How do you think this this story of Nepalese migration and its effect on household attitudes gives us a better understanding for the role of migration in job prospects and family marital outcomes uh, worldwide? Migration is increasingly more common and that is not going to change. The supply of migrants is only going to get larger and that is true worldwide. Whether some receiving countries close their borders is yet to be determined, but I think that its increasing prevalence means that these families, specifically the spouses, they hesitate to say it is a good thing and yet they understand that it is something that is part of their lives. As I was saying, it's not just a necessary evil for these husbands, but it is something that is a real reality for future generations. There's work looking at Mexico and investments in children's education. And what they are finding is that some of the children of migrants, yes, they are better educated, but they're also socialized and raised in a way in which they understand migration to be their... Destiny? Not their, exactly. Not their career, but exactly. So they end up actually tailoring their education their investment in human capital and social capital to use migration to benefit themselves and their families the most. Do you think, given your better understanding of this migration story, are there any policy implications for how you know, we can improve the good aspects of it and try to mitigate the negative ones? Or is it sort of just contributing to a better understanding of how labor and social dynamics happen? Well, there's a number of things, and I think that migration scholars would agree that, or economists would agree that making, sending money home as easy as possible is a, is a great way to start. Um, lower fees, and for instance, whether it's through mobile pay or whether it is making sure families can access their bank accounts easily, that's one way. Another thing, as I was saying, is to invest in these more rural communities or, for instance, subsidize or 
somehow make private schooling or higher quality education available in government schools so as so that the motivation for these men to move away is maybe smaller so create income opportunities in closer to these families another thing would be and this is the case in Nepal is really allowing women to migrate and that's not necessarily going to be something that they might respond to but it means I, I think it'll be two-sided one it'll take some pressure off of the men but two it'll really mean that households can make these migration decisions as one unit and if the best opportunity for a family is to send a woman to the Gulf to be a domestic worker then perhaps that is them having the ability to do that might be best for the household. And then a final thing would be for the government of Nepal to really step up at their efforts to make sure that these migrant workers abroad are working in humane conditions, which it's it's very hard to do, but it's a real problem. Now, thank you for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Compernal at Radio Free Jerome Studios in New York, New York. My guest today was Nell Compernal at the University of Michigan. To continue in the conversation, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns or email us at upsetpatterns at gmail.com. <laughs>